Well, I heard a, a line in a fantasy movie this week where various armies were battling with swords and shields and, and bows and arrows. And, and one character said this, said, if you stand alone with a shield, much of your body is still exposed. But if you stand in a group covering each other with your shields, nothing can touch any of you. It speaks to the danger of, of going it alone, trying to, to be a lone ranger, if you will. It leaves your back exposed to the enemy's arrows, with the enemy all around. The picture of every shield raised as one, with, with every person covering their neighbors as well as themselves, moving in a, in a coordinated formation through the enemy's assaults toward their final objective. It brings to mind all the great battles of the past where victory only comes when each person recognizes their dependence on each other. Hollywood often likes to, to highlight great individual solo efforts or, or to make it seem that what motivates great acts of valor is primarily the, the soldier's devotion to their noble cause or their devotion to their country or their devotion to their king. Of course, actual testimonies always prove otherwise. While there's certainly a measure of devotion to cause and devotion to country and devotion to king, great acts of valor of the past are always primarily attributed to their devotion to each other. Hence the metaphor, a band of brothers. That metaphor, it assumes that we have an innate understanding of the strength of the familial bond that, that should exist between brothers and sisters even if we've never enjoyed such a tight bond ourselves. We understand the duties that, that one sibling is to have in looking out for one another, which is precisely why the, the metaphor of family is applied in the New Testament to Christ's church. The family metaphor is not merely about the, the intimacy that we now enjoy with our Heavenly Father as His adopted sons and daughters in Christ brought into His family, nor is it merely about the bond that we now share with the one true Son of God, our brother, Jesus. It's also about the bond that we now share with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And not just the spiritual bond that, that we have with all believers of all times and all places, the universal church, that's true, but it's about the very real relationships that we now enjoy within the local church. Real relationships with real responsibilities. I invite you to turn with me to James, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, the last two verses of the letter of James. And you can find it on page 232 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let us pray. Father, we, we bow before you now as your adopted sons and daughters, having been brought into a, a right relationship, not just with you, but, but with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us now to reflect upon the fullness of these familial relationships that we may enjoy the fullness of the spiritual life to which you have called us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
Well, as James closes out his letter, he doesn't provide the, the kind of farewell greeting and or benediction that we're accustomed to reading in the rest of the New Testament epistles or in other ancient letters. He doesn't end the way we might expect. And really, that's not that surprising for James. This letter, which includes the highest number of commands per word of any book of the Bible, it closes not with a farewell, but with a yet one more call to action. One final command. Go after the wanderer. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Uh, the word for, for wander is, is a fairly common New Testament word. And though you, you can't tell from our English translations, here it's in the passive voice. Uh, when the word appears in the active voice, it means cause to wander, lead astray, deceive. So then in, in the passive voice, Technically, it would be if anyone among you is caused to wander, if anyone among you is led astray, if anyone is deceived. In fact, listen to how the word is used as a title in Revelation 12, verse 9, where it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He is the deceiver, the one who leads astray, the one who causes to wander. It's the same word, but in the active voice. And this helps us to see that while James will speak of the wanderer in verse 20 as a sinner with a multitude of sins, wandering from the truth begins not with behavior, but with belief. Wandering from the truth begins with believing lies. The lies of the evil one, that ancient serpent, the father of lies. And as we just considered in our sermon two Sundays ago about truth-telling, what was the first lie in recorded history? It comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, where the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, the, the father of lies convinced Adam and Eve that God would not punish their rebellion. And then wrapped up in that lie that God will not punish sin was the lie that God was holding out on them, withholding the good life from them with His law. It's the lie that, that greater happiness can be found outside of God's good designs for us, outside of God's moral law. That greatest happiness can be found in lives lived contrary to God's Word. But that's a lie. A lie that has enslaved every single human being ever born of Adam and Eve. And even for, for those of us who have been freed from the enslaving grip of the father of lies, being born again through the gospel of truth, the truth is we can still be tempted to, to believe the deceiver's lies at times, to begin to wander from the truth, at least for a season. This is not the first time in James's letter that he's used this word for wander. And his emphasis in the first occurrence of that word is instructive as we look at the second. The first occurrence came in chapter 1. We're beginning in verse 13, James wrote this. He said, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be 
deceived. That's the word. Do not be caused to wander, my beloved brothers. So there in, in chapter 1, James just skips, he skips past the, the very real and formidable influence of spiritual forces of evil. He skips past the very real and formidable influence of the world, the sinful culture around us, the broken reality of this creation. He skips past the influence of the evil one and of the world, and instead James goes right to the heart of the matter to our own disordered desires. See, without the desire to do something, we wouldn't do it. If we were perfectly sanctified, if we had attained perfection, well, we wouldn't have to worry about the possibility of wandering from the truth, would we? That we're not yet perfect. We never will be on this side of glory. As the Apostle Paul himself attests in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He presses on toward perfection, but he's not there yet. And so we, we humbly acknowledge our imperfection, and, and thus we humbly acknowledge our, our frailty, our vulnerability, our susceptibility to believing in lies and wandering from the truth. It's why we sing, as we did earlier, let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Don't believe the lie that you are invulnerable, that you're immune to the possibility of being deceived and wandering from the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Then on the flip side of that, don't believe the lie that you have no choice but to give in to the temptation. Paul continued the next verse of 1 Corinthians 10. He said, No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. that You may be able to endure it. The way of escape is, of course, the spirit of truth. The Spirit who, who guides us into all truth, convicting us of the truth and empowering us to put to death the deeds of the body. So again, two lies here. Don't believe the lie that you are invulnerable or that you're capable of fighting temptation apart from the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. And don't believe the lie that you have no choice but to give in to that temptation. For God has provided a way of escape. And getting back to the language of being deceived and caused to wander in James chapter 1, remember how James began. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That is, don't believe the lie that God wants you to, to throw off the shackles of his ancient law. The lie that, well, he's the one who made me this way. He's the one who gave me these desires. He's the one who put me in this body. He's the one who orchestrated these circumstances in which I find myself. He is the one who is leading me to embrace this life of sin. He just wants me to be happy, to do what's best for me. Now, what is best for you, the path to greatest happiness, is never the path that leads away from His will and His ways as revealed in His Word. 
Recognize that wandering from the truth begins with believing lies, which always leads to living lies. Believing lies leads to living lies. What we do, it flows out of what we believe. If we believe lies, we'll live out those lies. If we are living a lie, it's because we are believing a lie. Lies about what we were made for. Lies about what brings greatest satisfaction in life. Lies about how satisfied we are in our souls when we walk away from the shepherd of our souls, the path of life. Lies about where all other paths lead. Lies about not having to give an answer to our maker on the last day. Look again at verse 20 of James chapter 5. He says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is how serious believing lies and living lies is. Those who who persist in in wandering away from the truth, who, who show themselves to be hardened against the truth and who never return to the path of life, they are left without any covering for their sins and they will die in their sin. When death is spoken of, as it is here, in connection with sin and with the language of a soul being saved, when that happens in the New Testament, it's always talking about the second death, eternal death, the penalty of our sin, the very thing that Jesus came to save us from. For God the Son took on flesh to live the life of perfect obedience to the truth that that we have all failed to live to die the death that we deserve for our wandering from that truth and to rise from the grave in victory over sin and death so that all who place their trust in Him may have the multitude of their sins covered by His perfect righteousness. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, upon the merits of Christ alone. We are not saved by our obedience, but those with a living faith, with a a faith that saves, although they may begin to wander at times, they cannot persist in that wandering over time. So Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, verse 7, he writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, that you no longer give yourself over to it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As he wrote in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 19, they, the the group that had broken away from their church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. The point being, those who persist in their wandering away from the truth and never return are left without any covering for their sins. So as we consider the seriousness of of wandering away from the truth and we consider our, our own proclivities toward wandering, we recognize 
our need for one another. This gets back to the previous passage from last week about the power of a praying church. Recall what James said in verse 16 in chapter 5. He said, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Shows us that, that refusing uh, to let other people know how they can pray for your spiritual battles, the areas in which you're being tempted to believe a lie or to live a lie, refusing to let others know about that deprives you of the power of their prayers. The depiction of the Christian life shown to us in Scripture is a life that takes sin very seriously. It's committed to, to partnering with fellow church members to, to help each other pursue holiness together, confessing our sins to one another so that we may pray for one another. Do you have this kind of relationship with anyone in this church? One in which it would be normal for you to, to confess your sins with them and for the other person to confess their sins with you so that you might pray for one another and experience the power of those prayers. If you're worried that, that you wouldn't know how to navigate such an intimate, personal relationship, I'd encourage you to take a look at the discipleship meeting guide that I have printed in the, in the entryway, in the welcome area. It walks you through such a meeting describing the five parts of the meeting where you open in prayer for your time together. You, you study a passage of Scripture together and has some helps for doing that. Where you discuss any burdens to be prayed over with some helps for that. Walking through accountability questions with some helps for that. And then closing in prayer for one another. Any two brothers, any two sisters in the church are capable of partnering together in this kind of dedicated, discipling relationship. Or you can do what James commands us to do to confess your sins to one another so that you may pray for one another. This is clearly part of God's design for a healthy, life-giving church. But of course, as we see in verse 19 and 20, God's design for a healthy, life-giving church goes beyond a willingness to confess our sins and to pray for one another. It goes beyond consistently availing ourselves of the opportunities to, to meet together and seize hold of the means of grace in our weekly gatherings. God's design for a healthy, life-giving church also includes going after the wanderers. Not merely those who begin to neglect regularly meeting with us, as we're commanded to do in Hebrews 10. Certainly that kind of wandering away from the fold applies, but, but so, so too does any, any wandering into sinful practices. Uh, consider the, the description of wandering from the truth of the Israelites that we read about in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, as the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, where God says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation, the, the wilderness generation. And God said, They always go astray, same word for wander, they always wander, they go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, knowing this about the wilderness generation, what are we to do? He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. There not be an evil, unbelieving heart. Okay, how? How do I do that? How do we take care not to fall away? Is it simply personal self-reflection and personal spiritual disciplines? No. He continues, verse 13, but exhort one another 
every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, sin is deceitful. It blinds us to its presence in our lives. It threatens to lead us astray. So what do we do? Commanded, partner with brothers and sisters in Christ who will commit to exhort us daily as they see us wander. This is one of the the primary reasons for for joining a local church. There are a number of good reasons for for joining a a church, but, but one very near the top of the list must be this issue of disordered hearts that are prone to wander. Our desperate need for others to to come alongside of us in our struggle to stay off the path that leads to destruction and on the path that leads to life. When we join a church, what we're doing is we're raising our hand and confessing, I recognize the deceitfulness of sin. I recognize the, the danger of wandering away from the truth. And so I'm inviting others to come after me if I wander, to exhort me to return to the truth. And notice in James who it is that's called to seek to restore the wanderer. James doesn't say, let the elders, pastors, overseers, seek to bring back the wanderer. He addressed the elders back in verse 14. But then in verse 16, James broadened his audience back to the entire church. And he further emphasizes that point in verse 19 with the address, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, it's the responsibility of every member of a church, not just the elders, pastors, overseers. When we invite others uh, to to look out for us, to, to cover our backs, the agreement goes both ways. In joining the church, you're also committing to, to look out for them as you call them to look out for you. No matter how uncomfortable that may make us feel. Because love demands that we go after wanderers. Love demands that we go after wanderers. It's an indication of how warped our culture has become uh, that we find ourselves needing to reassure ourselves that, that this is in fact the loving thing to do. That bringing someone from the path of destruction back onto the path that leads to life is what love demands. We have to reassure ourselves of that. Because our culture has redefined the word love, as sounding as that may seem. It no longer means desiring and seeking the good of somebody else. Now, love means desiring and seeking to make others feel good about themselves, affirming the goodness and the rightness of their own self-determined identity. That's a lie. That's not love. Seeking to make people feel good about their self-destructive choices is not loving, it's evil. We must combat the lie that love requires affirmation of sin. We must combat the pluralistic lie that says, everyone just needs to live their own truth. If someone says these things are no longer true for them, you just need to let them live their truth. Well, their creator and king says otherwise. And he has spoken truth. And he's calling us to love each other by doing the same. There is no love in lies. Love speaks truth. We must combat the lie that love requires affirmation of sin. We must combat the lie of the pluralistic society, just people are to live their own truth. We also must combat the consumeristic lie 
that churches are just providers of religious goods and services, a kind of social club with a religious veneer. Eh, if somebody doesn't want to continue their membership in the club because they want to try a different lifestyle, eh, so be it. Who are we to intervene? But a church is not a provider of religious goods and services. It's not a social club with a religious veneer. That's not why you join a church. When you join a church, you're not joining a social club. You're joining a spiritual family, a band of brothers who have each other's backs, who are looking out for one another as we strive together to advance God's kingdom in the hearts of others, beginning with the prone-to-wander hearts of our brothers and sisters. Now, we don't do this in a judgmental sense that James has already addressed in the letter. Several times now in our study of the letter of James, we've discussed three different kinds of sinful judging. Hopefully you've got them in your mind now. There's, there's the legalistic judging of Romans chapter 14, adding law where God has given no law. It's not up to us to decide how people should live their lives. This is not a matter of what we think is best for others. It's a matter of what God has revealed is best for others. Legalistic judging. Then there's hypocritical judging. The hypocritical judging of Matthew 7, where we approach our brothers and sisters as though we arrived at perfection the moment we first believed, as though we have never needed someone to come after us, as though we believe we never will. A holier-than-thou hypocritical judging. And then there's the presumptuous judging of 1 Corinthians 4 and James chapter 4, presuming to know the hidden sins and motives of someone's heart. But so long as we're not legalistically inventing law or hypocritically ignoring the log in our own eye or presumptuously jumping to conclusions, so long as we're not sinfully judging and so long as we're motivated by love, that we, we genuine desire, genuinely desire restoration of this person, we find no pleasure in the failings of others, well, in that case, love demands that we go after wanderers. I mean, this is what it means to bear one another's burdens. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens by seeking to restore anyone caught in transgression. In the moment uh, when you suddenly recognize it dawns on you that a fellow member of the church has wandered, either they, they pulled away from the fold through absence or they've begun to openly believe and to live lies, you may find yourself asking, okay, I, I, I see it, but who am I to reach out? And that's actually a good question to ask because it humbles you. It humbles you as you recognize your own failures. It humbles you as you recognize your uncertainty and what to say to them. And then that, that posture of humility, well, that's precisely what qualifies you who have recognized the need to then speak up. The truth is, of course, that we all have an imperfect witness. We all speak imperfect words as we seek to restore others. But we're not trusting in our perfect witness or our perfect words to restore. We're not trusting in ourselves to bring back the wanderer. We're trusting in God to work through the imperfect ministry of His people. Recall the language from Ezekiel 34 that Louise read earlier. 
God rebuked the the false uh, shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders there, who had not gone after his straying sheep. And God declared that the day was coming when, quote, I myself, said God, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. Okay, how? How does he do that? How does God bring back the wanderers? Well, first, by sending his son, the good shepherd. That's what Ezekiel 34 is pointing to, the coming of the good shepherd. But with the departure of Jesus from the earth, how is God bringing back wanderers now? Well, Jesus told us. Not just by commissioning his people to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, but but even before that, Jesus made the same connection that James is making. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd rejoices over the restored wanderer more than over the 99 sheep that never went astray. And in the very next verse, Jesus explained how this takes place now. How does the shepherd seek after and restore the wanderer? God brings back the wanderer through their fellow church members going after them. It's Matthew 18. You are the means that God is using to bring back the wanderers among us. In Genesis chapter 4, uh, we read about the very first pair of brothers, right? Cain and Abel. We read about how Cain kills his own brother. And the Lord said to Cain, Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This hate-filled murderer refused to see himself as his brother's keeper. But that's exactly what we're meant to be. Love demands that we go after wanderers. You are your brother's keeper. Getting back to that image of one lone warrior who has strayed from the company of his unit and is unprotected and exposed except on the side that he's got his shield. Our spiritual enemies are real. They come at us from every side. They know how to appeal to the disordered desires that still linger in our not yet perfected hearts. So we need others to band together with us, covering each other with our shields in order to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6. And when one of our brothers gets wounded and starts staggering away from our unit, dazed and confused, we don't just keep moving on our way. We go after them as we would want them to go after us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Lord, help us to accept and to delight in your design for your church, rejoicing that you do seek the lost, that you do bring back the strayed, and that you do so through us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.